This is Miguel Angel Baltiera, and welcome to the Oculus Podcast on October 20th, 2017. Sarah Williams Goldhagen joins me today during a short break from a year-long trip around the world to discuss her new book, Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives, recently published in April by HarperCollins of New York. Sarah presented Welcome to Your World as part of the Oculus Book Talk series on June 15th at the Center for Architecture in New York City. Sarah's new book explores how the world around us influences our day-to-day existence without our realizing. Drawing on recent research in cognitive neuroscience and psychology, Sarah describes the effects that cities, landscapes, streetscapes, and buildings can have on our physical health and social lives. Welcome to Your World looks at how future population growth will necessitate increased building at how we can make decisions now to plan forward for healthy environments. Sarah taught at Harvard's Graduate School of Design for 10 years and subsequently served as the New Republic's architecture critic. She devoted early career to analyzing the history and theory of late modern architecture. She wrote a book on Louis Kahn and edited one on post-war modernism before opting to leave the academy to write full-time for a wide range of general interest and scholarly journals in the USA and internationally. Welcome to the Oculus Podcast, Sarah. I hope you will share with us some new discoveries about cognitive psychology and more as we visit Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Your book starts with a family trip in Italy where, as a teenager, you had a moment to fall in love with the power of architecture. So much has happened between the first encounter in Florence and your immersion into the realm of environmental psychology for over a decade. How did your travels, teaching, and writing lead you towards the body of knowledge carefully assembled for Welcome to Your World? I began the book with the anecdote about being in Florence because in a way, the book was a journey back to the beginning for me intellectually in the sense that what first drew me to architecture was the power of the emotional and cognitive experiences that it can provide. And I've been, we've all been struck by that power. Anybody who's become an architect, I think, falls in love when they walk into someplace and just realize how transformed they are. At the time that I started working, on this and realizing that this could be something that I did professionally, uh, I I didn't want to be an architect, a practitioner. I was a word person and I knew that writing was my metier and my means of expressing myself, communicating what I wanted to about the world. Really, the only options were to go into art history uh, or to get a PhD in architecture. Uh, So I did that, which threw me for 20 years into the kind of historical inquiries into how we think about architecture, how architects think about architecture, what architects' intentions are, how those intentions are translated into buildings or not translated into buildings, the the powerful impact of historical context, all the things historians think about, right, Uh, and theorists think about. I went into graduate school knowing I wanted to write about Khan, simply because I love Khan, right? Uh, I mean, and I thought it would be interesting to try to figure out what he was doing, and nothing that I read really satisfied what I thought he was doing uh, in his work and the effects that his work has. Uh, but at the end of all of this, I, I felt like I still hadn't answered the questions that had led me to architecture in the first place, which is why does it have such a powerful effect on us? 
uh, socially? Why does it have such a powerful effect on the way people interact with one another? Why does it have such a powerful effect on how we feel and what we think? And what is that effect? These were not questions that, that were really being asked. And it was partly disciplinary. Historians don't tend to ask those kinds of questions. It was partly institutional in that the academy at that point was quite enthralled with post-structuralism and post-modernism. And so the social construction of reality, which was a much more interesting question than these more phenomenological and psychological and experiential questions were. Um, and then when I became a critic, because I left teaching to become a full-time critic for the New Republic, that brought me even further back to these initial questions because I thought, you know, I'm not writing for architects anymore. I'm writing for architects and a general audience, people who are not trained, and, but who live with these things every day. And what's important to them? What's important to them is how they experience the buildings, how it shapes their lives, and so on. So it's been a kind of big, almost looping trajectory back to some initial questions that I had. And, and the other part of the answer is that uh, there has been in the last 30 years an enormous amount of research on cognition and perception. So our understanding of how people experience these places, any buildings, streetscapes, landscapes, and so on, uh, has been dramatically transformed. Uh, we just know a lot more than we did when I started out in my 20s thinking about architecture. And so I thought, okay, I can put this all together and I can maybe begin to answer some of those questions that have really always been some of the driving questions for me. Who is the intended audience for your research? My intended audience is everyone, really. Um, I mean, I suppose most authors will say that, but in my case, it may be more true than others because architects do tend to uh, speak mainly to each other, except when they're trying to get clients and so on. When I was writing for the New Republic, I was writing, I was very consciously writing at that point for policymakers and for the cultural literati basically, uh, and that's always been an important part of my intended audience because, uh, because I think that words have the power to change things, and if I can help shape the way people think about things in a way that's good, I'm going to do that. I also am struck by how many people are really, really interested in architecture but, don't, but feel disempowered to think about it, talk about it, ask questions about it. I can't tell you how many experiences I had when I was working as a critic of doctors, for example, um, saying, oh, you write about architecture. Oh, and then just asking me, I mean, I had one doctor chasing me down the hallway when he looked at my chart and saw what I did and saying, what do you think of the CCTV building in Beijing? You know, people love architecture. They're really interested, but architecture is complicated and the professional language around it makes it difficult to access for most people. And I knew, because I knew I can write, that I could be someone that, uh, that helped open up an opaque but very socially important field 
to a wider audience. Uh, so the general public, uh, policymakers, you know, pretty much, and why I say everybody is because even if people aren't hiring an architect to do a kitchen renovation or, or on the school committee to help the local public school build a swimming pool or in some way involved in architecture, we all live with it. Everybody lives with it. And what the research has shown, which is what I write about in the book, is that it's far, far more impactful on how we think, what we think, how we fare physically, how we fare emotionally, than anybody, even architects, really realized. I understand you are a design missionary. <laughs> you left academia to provide a larger voice for design awareness and mm -hmm. your research on mm -hmm. embodied cognition and how it serves our ability to maneuver and create memories in the built and unbuilt environment. Well, this is part of that. Design awareness to a general public, and, and also, you know, some, some people have said, like, I'm a bit of a nag or a scold. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm a kind, I can be a thorn in people's sides. I, told, I get that. And it's not intentional, but it is well-meaning, let's put it that way. So I think that architects can change some of the things that they're doing, and I think promote design awareness. So yes, I very much am a missionary. Um, when I became, a, again, when I became a critic, one of the first things I thought is, you know, I just didn't want to be a critic, and I'm not referring to architecture critics necessarily to any kind of critic, who sort of does a thumbs up, thumbs down. This is great, that's bad. You know, without any clear, clearly articulated, thoughtful statement about what it was he or she expected in architecture. What were the standards that you were using? And so then I had to develop that. And in the process of developing that, you know, you think very carefully and clearly. You feel you have a public responsibility. Uh, you, you develop a vision for what you think architecture can be and should be. And then how can you not become a missionary? I mean, my husband often says, you know, you only write a book, which takes a lot of work, right? Uh, you only write a book if you think you're right and if you think it matters, because who would spend that much time doing this otherwise? So yeah, I'm a missionary. I, I accept that. <laughs> and I anticipate you're 100% right. Thank you. In Auto Da Vinci was only 50% right. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Long ago, when I was a student, Jane Jacobs, William White, and Kevin Lynch were the essential authors introduced by environmental psychology professor Dr. Kathy Anthony and her father, Dr. Harry Anthony. That informed my urban design studies and became building blocks on studies articulating how people use public space. Then Jan Gale's observational studies advanced the field, and with whom I also had the pleasure of interviewing as part of the Oculus podcast series. Now you come into my world with Welcome to Your World. I'm so curious to learn from you about the incremental paradigm shifts that are placing us in the wake of a radical change in design thought. I love the lineage that you trace out here from Jane Jacobs to Kevin Lynch to Jan Gell. Um, I'm humbled and honored that I'm in that lineage. Um, and, but in terms of the people who have influenced me, the writers who have influenced me and helped to shape my view, um, it's right on target. Uh, I wrote about Kevin Lynch. Kevin Lynch was actually in touch with Lou Kahn 
And Lynch sent an early manuscript of the image of the city before it was called that to Kahn, and Kahn wrote comments on it and sent it back to him. And so even in my late 20s, when I started doing this research, uh, I, of course, I'd read The Image of the City before then, but what a brilliant book. Um, an absolutely brilliant book. And astonishingly enough, when I started doing this research in psychology, all the categories that Lynch identified just by going off and interviewing people and looking at cities are the categories that psychologists now use to talk about the ways cognitively that we assimilate and understand cities. So he was right um, in a really, really profound sense. Jane Jacobs, pretty much simultaneously, was much more interested in the social aspects of it. One of the things I'm trying to do is to integrate the social and individual psychological experience. Um, because people often separate them out. They say either you, know, either you talk about how the built environment affects a person psychologically or, or you talk about social constructions. And of course, there are heuristic reasons why uh, people make that distinction, but the fact is it's all a continuum and um, you can't really separate these things out. And that's one of the things that Jan Gell is doing with his work is showing how through social interactions, um, people appropriate cities and, be, and develop connections to them more. Um, so what does my book contribute to this? I think uh, a couple of different things. One is that I do demonstrate the continuum between what most people would consider private individual experience and the social experience that one has in the built environment. That's where the concept of action settings comes in and is so important. Um, so, and the reason this is important is because most people in the past who have talked about phenomenology uh, have talked about it as being in contrast to social or pol socio-political experience. And it's not. It's obviously not. Uh, but there hasn't been a kind of full-bodied paradigm that accounted for both dimensions, and mine does. I think that that is actually one of, one of the most important contributions of the book, if I can say that. Um, and then the other is to, to transform experience, whether it's social or individual private experience, into something we can talk about. I have found over the years that when I would ask architects, when I would sit on juries and so on, well, how would someone experience this project? You know, what would, what would she see when she looked over there and what kinds of materials and what kinds of the... You know, now, of course, architects do a lot of different things and it's hard. I totally get that right, built, designing buildings is really hard. Um, but it almost was a question that couldn't be asked. Um, within the context, uh, within the circles where, that I was exposed to, how people could experience things. Because people would say, oh, it's too personalistic, it's too social. If you're a woman, it's going to be different than if you're a man. You know, how could you possibly talk about how an 18th century French person experienced the Pantheon in Paris? Um, you have no idea, right? And I came to realize that, yes, gender matters, 
and cultural construction of, of consciousness matters, and all those things do inflect experience. But I just became much more interested in what was not different, what was the same, because we all live in bodies, and we all have eyes, and those eyes face forward, and our vision functions in a certain way, and what's behind us is things we can't see. And so I wanted to really think about what, what about human experience writ large. As bad environments have no boundary or protection from boring buildings or harsh contexts, such as temporary housing in Haiti, what got lost in the way architects and planners design? Is there any correlation to the demise of our cities and quality of life as less than 4 to 15% of the built environment involves a trained design professional? When I first signed the contract to this book, it was very kind of circumstantial. A book agent in New York contacted me and said, have you ever thought about writing a book for the general public? I like your writing. And I thought, yeah, sure, I could do that. That sounds cool. I'll write a book on why architecture is important. And that was it. I mean, I really had absolutely no idea what I was going to write about, except that I thought that architecture was important. And I knew about these studies in cognition, and I thought there was something there. And then I found all this research that it convinced me, um, and I think should convince pretty much anybody that it way, it's way more important than even design professionals have been taught to understand. Um, it mean, and that there's a lot of information about there, about how it's important. There's a lot of facts and data. So the mission of the book evolved in the sense that as I realized that you know, design will change the way my grandmother heals from an operation or can have a huge impact on the way my kid is educated. Um, really real-life, concrete, down-to-earth, you know, critical matters that people think about every day. I became more and more convinced that I was developing the best case out there for why design matters. And I really think I have it. <laughs> um, not that other people don't have it, too. Uh, Jan Gell certainly has it. Because if we begin to appreciate that design shapes all of these things, then policymakers are going to start to listen. And community groups are going to start to listen. And uh, people, my point is quite simply that the value that society places on design in light of this information that I present in the book, the value that society places on the design has to change. We have to accord a much more central place to design than we currently do. Currently, design is seen as kind of a luxury good. And if you're lucky and you're wealthy, you can pay for it or if you happen to luck into some enlightened public officials that want to pay for the Brooklyn Bridge Park or whatever. Um, and, but the rest of the environment, it doesn't really matter. And one of the things the book shows is that it does matter. There is no such thing as neutral experience in the built environment. And as I often say, if it's not helping you, it's diminishing you, it's diminishing your life, it may even be hurting you. Um, so, yes, step one would be to mandate 
in all sorts of different ways through market demand and through policy that more of the built environment be designed by professional designers. After all, that's the way it works in Europe. Uh, and, you know, European cities look better than American cities for a reason. Um, it's because they accord design a much higher value than we do in the United States. That is very sad. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Well, actually, I can say a little more, too, um, which is as the, as the book was evolving, I don't know how you're going to edit this, but I'll say it anyway. Um, as the book was evolving, I had been living in the Boston area because I met my husband when we were both teaching at Harvard and we were raising our children there and so on and so forth. And then four and a half years ago, something like that, we moved to New York. And I got this place, which is in East Harlem. And East Harlem, as I'm sure you know, has one of the largest percentage, largest concentration of social housing projects in the United States. Um, most of them not great. A lot of them really bad. They were, in fact, I found out subsequently, many of them were built to not be great. Um, and they still aren't. But of course, people need them, and they build them. And so as I was finishing this book and really right in the process of writing it, I would go for walks at the end of every day and I would walk in my neighborhood and I would look at these buildings that are horribly maintained, that have tiny windows where the apartments have seven foot high ceilings, um, where there isn't even a public entrance in a lot of them. And I would think, what are these places doing to these people? So it became even that much more an urgent mission and an urgent call to me to make the best case I could for why design is important. And I have to say that I was on a panel with Richard Roberts, who was the former housing commissioner of um, New York City. And he said, this is the book that I've been looking for, that all of us have been looking for for 20 years. I'm going to give it to everybody I know. Now, that sounds like a sales pitch, but it's not. It's a, it's a go out there and, you know, you can make the case that design is really important. How is blind sight a demonstration of unconscious and conscious cognition? Well, first let me explain what blind sight is, and then I'll, um, I'll explain why it was useful to me and how I use it in the book. Uh, blind sight is a neurological condition that results from having lesions in a certain portion of the visual part of your, of your visual cortex. And it's a really interesting condition because uh, people who have blind sight experience themselves as totally blind. Um, if you ask them, they say, I can't see anything. It's dark, whatever. Uh, and yet, if you sit them in a room and put a light source in a certain place only, and you say, point to the light source, they will accurately point to the light source. They won't think they are, uh, but well above chance. Um, yeah, it's totally fascinating. Um, so. And there are, other, there are other examples of this. Um, if you light location of objects, they'll get them. So what's going on here? Uh, what's going on is that consciously they can't see, but 
parts of the visual system are still working, so in fact they are seeing. They just don't know it. And I realized, I mean, the way I found blindsight is that people who work on consciousness are, are, for obvious reasons, totally fascinated by this condition. Because what does it mean to see something but not see it? To not know you're seeing it, and so on, anyway. And so there, there's a whole literature on consciousness where blindsight is always discussed. And what I realized is that this was really an excellent metaphor for the way that most people move through the built environment. Because what the cognitive research shows is that most of what we think and therefore experience is not conscious. It's unconscious. It's what I call non-conscious. I don't want to use the word unconscious because then you get into Freud and I've, I'm not interested in Freud and it's not relevant. Um, it's non-conscious, which is most of what we think we don't really know we're thinking. Uh, an example from the book, I did this sort of imaginary walk through Greenwich Village where it's kind of cold and there's stinky garbage around and so on and so forth and you're walking to, to get some milk. And because it's cold and there's stinky garbage around, you know, your, your body sort of withdraws into itself, right? Um, you know, your muscles tense and you're not open and relaxed the way that you would be otherwise. Now, these are things, you know, they didn't collect the garbage and the garbage cans are on the street. That's a built environmental thing, right? So you experience the smell. Um, the weather's cold and there's a wind tunnel. That's a built environmental thing that could be different. So you experience the wind and you get colder than you would otherwise. Um, you emerge from that walk thinking about how angry you are at your mother because you had a com phone conversation with her last night that didn't go all that well, da 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 But what you don't realize is that the contraction of your muscles and the withdrawal of your body because of these built environmental features are putting you in a cognitive mindset to feel negative emotions more than positive emotions. Um, and that's the kind of effects that design decisions all along the way in the built environment have on us and we're not even aware of it. Uh, and and an, another analogy, because I, I see you looking a little bit skeptical. I don't know if I'm right or I'm wrong, but uh, <laughs> I, I discern a little bit of skepticism. But it's analogous to what behavioral economists are now saying about the way people make decisions in the marketplace, which is um, that you don't really know that people do not act rationally and that they make decisions based on schemas, past experiences, false assumptions, uh, heuristics that they've de developed that work for them sometimes but are often wrong. Um, <clears throat> and so that a lot of what we think is logical uh, is in fact based on things that are really not logical at all. And Part of what I'm doing in the book is saying that our experience of the built environment is like that too. But just as in behavioral economics, you can, I mean, the word that has become kind of the buzzword in behavioral economics is nudge. You can nudge people to make better decisions. A perfect example of nudge is by putting calorie counts on restaurant menus. 
you nudge people, you know, am I, do I really want an 800-calorie cookie when I could get a 550-calorie whatever macaroon or something like that? Um, that's just a nudge, but it works. And design is a perfect instrument for nudging people um, to, to get them to think differently, to behave differently, and to make better decisions in their lives, to really improve their lives all across the board. Does that make sense? It's also a nudge for memory. And a totally a nudge for memory. Absolutely, yes. I appreciate what you wrote. The built environment constitutes the foundation upon which our past, present, and future selves are constructed. What sticky elements are essential to enable memory and long-term positive influence? Has the research managed to identify what creates profound experiences versus limited and stressful environments? Yes, it has, amazingly enough. I mean, it's beginning. All of this research, particularly the research that directly pertains to the built environment, is just beginning. Um, so there's a lot more to do. But first, let me talk about memory, and then I'll talk about the elements in the built environment that create what you and I together call stickiness. One of the things that has emerged in studies in cognitive neuroscience, we now understand, I mean, there's one thing, if there's one aspect of cognition that people understand best at this point, it's memory and learning, how people learn. And uh, what has emerged is that a certain kind of memory, which we call long-term autobiographical memories. That's what psychologists would call it. You and I would probably just call it memory. Long-term autobiographical or episodic memories are consolidated in a part of the brain called the hippocampus. The reason that's so interesting for architects is that the hippocampus is also what we use for spatial navigation and place recognition. And so you actually can't form long-term episodic autobiographical memories without retaining aspects of place in that. Um, there's always going to be the angle of the light coming in from one direction or the texture of the wood on the floor or whatever because you actually wouldn't even be remembering these things if you didn't retain that information. So what does that mean? What that means is that you as an architect or an urban designer or whatever can design places that people are more likely to retain. Uh, and another way to say that is a, a building, a room, a streetscape, whatever, that is meaningful to a person through design. Now, what do you use? Some of the things that the research suggests, which I think is really interesting, is that what we know of cognition and perception is that we engage and understand information that is visual through our motor systems, not just through visual analysis. Uh, so when we look at a surface, we imagine what it feels like to touch it. Or when we look at a window, we think, okay, how does that open up? Things like that. There, um, Texture matters a lot. So even if you have a very knobby texture, let's take the A&A building by Paul Rudolph at Yale, you know, which has this really grainy, um, almost aggressive texture in it. Um, you don't need to touch that surface to know that if you brush up against it by mistake, it's probably not going to feel very good. 
And that inflects your experience of that space in a really profound way. So one of the, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating that I found in the book is that because we engage with, the, with surfaces, with our motor systems as well as conceptually, cognitively, surfaces, textures, colors, uh, opportunities for us to imagine physical engagement with those surfaces is really, really important. Uh, and that, I think, is, I tend to like architecture that is deeply engaged in material investigations, in, um, in the use of good materials, materials that not only have visual qualities, but sonic qualities that are paid attention to, and tactile qualities that are paid attention to, and variations of textures, and so on. So there are definitely things that architects, designers can do that will make sticky spaces, uh, sticky experiences that people will come back to and remember um, for the rest of their lives. Upon reading about bodily basis of cognition, readers learn the integrated mind and body share the allocentric and egocentric schemas. Each person has various schemas based on the range of experiences. The tatami serves as a beautiful modular. Yet would you consider Le Corbusier's modular as successful? What insight did Oliver Altor or Peter Zumtor obtain that have resulted in timeless and tireless design solutions that address the allocentric versus human scale, the egocentric, and sustainability? There's a lot in that question. Le Corbusier's modular, I'm going to take the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. I've, I've been in a ton of Le Corbusier buildings. Um, so let's pass that one. <laughs> okay. I'll give you a break. Um, <laughs> Allocentric and egocentric, what does that mean? Um, egocentric is your experience of yourself as a body inside your head. Okay? Um, it's the way that we experience ourselves all the time. Right? Allocentric is, uh, is the looking at your body from an external point, as a point on a map or a point in space or whatever. Um, and one of the reasons I make this, it's a psychological distinction, it's in every college psychological textbook, uh, is that architects, I think, are sometimes really excellent at designing for allocentric people, but not so much for egocentric people, because they just don't have access to the kind of information uh, that I'm hoping that they get more access to. Um, or they intuit some aspects of egocentric experience, but they don't, they don't have the depth of understanding um, that they can have if training were different. And you need to design for both. And that's where architects like, and there are plenty of others, uh, Zumtor and um, Al Alvarado come in. I mean, Zumtor is very careful to talk about multisensory experience. Uh, he understands multisensory experience more than I think he understands multimodal experience, and I'll explain what those are. Multisensory is uh, not only visual. I mean, this is something that Yuhani Palazma and lots of other people talk about too. You know, it, architecture, our built environmental experience is not only what we see through our eyes; it's what we hear, it's what we smell. It's what we imagine smelling. It's what we imagine touching. It's what we touch, and so on. So um, 
there's a wide range of senses out there. A really fun couple of months during the research of this book was all the stuff I did about sound um, and how exquisitely sensitive people are to sonic qualities of materials uh, and how you use sound to locate yourself in space, to locate other people in space. I mean, it's a very important quality that I think, of course, acousticians understand but you know the people who are designing the luxury condos on Third Avenue aren't necessarily aware of um, and need to be. Uh, so there's multi-sensory experience and then there's multimodal, which is what I was referring to, to before, which is that not only do you have all of these senses that you're using when you appropriate a built environment, a streetscape, an interior, a landscape, whatever, um, but you're also using your motor system. Uh, because you're imaginatively engaging and making decisions about how to engage uh, as you move through the space. So I think that there needs to be a much broader lens and much more information brought to bear in, uh, in the kinds of considerations that, that people are trained to think about and that clients are asked are asking of their architects uh, in thinking about what creates a, a really complete, resonant, and supportive or revelatory or whatever built environment. Does that answer your question? It does. Okay. <laughs> While you were teaching, was the body of knowledge taught? Is developing the intuition and awareness enough for architects to design with a schema that will make the urban environment wonderful? This information is taught some places, um, but it's not taught generally in architecture curriculums. So I can name probably, I can count the schools that teach environmental psychology, cognition, you know, these findings about perception and so on, uh, as part of a general curriculum, I think I can count the schools that I know of on one and a half hands. Um, and interestingly enough, and curiously enough, really, most of the major schools of architecture don't teach it. Uh, and there are historical reasons and institutional reasons and sociological reasons. There's all sorts of reasons why that's true. Uh, but they should be. It's pretty clear that they should be. And um, that is another sort of leg of the stool of, that I'm trying to set up, is that I think that we do know things about how humans experience buildings and cities and streetscapes and landscapes. There are facts out there. And and students who are being taught to design our built environments need to know that information. It's pretty much that simple. How does each place we visit with you throughout Welcome to Your World result in a different set of decisions and serve as action settings? Action settings is this really fascinating concept that was developed by a psychologist in the 50s and 60s whose name was Roger Barker. Uh, he, was a he was trained in behaviorism, which was, of course, the, the dominant psychological school in the United States at the time. And he realized that 
whatever information psychologists were gleaning by doing experiments in laboratories, they were missing a lot because they were doing experiments in laboratories, uh, which meant that they weren't doing, they weren't studying how people behaved in real life settings. And so he, div he set up what he called the Midwest Psychological Research Field Station in Kansas and hired a team of psychologists and chose a school, a bunch of school children and had psychologists assigned each one psychologist to one school child and had them followed all through the day from eating breakfast to going on the school bus to going to the classroom to going to piano lessons and judo lessons, whatever, going home, doing homework, going to bed, whatever. And they did this for a bunch of months, and they correlated all this data, and they did individual interviews with each child and with the child's parents and so on. It's a huge study. And they found that they could predict more about a child's behavior by looking at the, where that child was than by thinking about who that child was. So the children would act differently in the classroom than they would in judo class or in the cafeteria and so on and so forth. And it's a very powerful statement about how the environments we inhabit, which are all constructed or mostly constructed, shape what we think and what we do and how we interact with other people. Uh, and it is the link between individual experience and social experience because uh, basically every place we have is a, a setting for action and communicates that almost right away. Um, an, a setting for private action, a setting for contemplative action, a setting for social engagement, a setting for public participation. Uh, and so if we think about the built environment as action settings and action settings nested within action settings, I mean, it doesn't mean that they're only that, but it means that they powerfully communicate these messages and that they, that can be a tool that designers can use. You invite designers to consider pattern complexity, the abstract values of nature, people as actors in action settings and then metaphor. The Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh by Eric Morales and Benedita Talibule is presented as a project that represents all the qualities we should consider when designing for humans. Can you walk us through what the architecture team accomplished and how this becomes the baseline for what design can be as a new paradigm for the future of design? It's a building that I love. I noticed in your notes that you also pointed out that it came out three times over budget, <laughs> which it did. Uh, there are a lot of different reasons for that. And the fact of the matter is it still exemplifies all these good things. And my position is, and I have a zillion examples to prove it, is that you can get better design or worse design at any level of investment. But this is a building that does a lot. So from a point of view of providing an example, one thing is the integration of landscape and architecture in this building. The architects designed all of it, and they designed the building to respond to the landscape and to the site, and in fact, the building or the design starts way, way 
from where the facade is. Uh, it's a very, very carefully integrated, very gently integrated into the landscape in this really beautiful way. Um, so whereas, you know, you would think of many parliament buildings as being these big monolithic type of buildings, right? Um, this is a perfect building for Scottish national identity, which is so immersed in the landscape of Scotland and in place. And uh, this, it's a very welcoming entry sequence into the building from the landscape in through the space. So that's one thing it does is integrate landscape. Also on the interior, there are, there are interior courtyards that are planted and the place is flooded in very unexpected ways with natural light. Uh, even in multi, I mean, he, he works hard to get natural light into spaces that wouldn't necessarily get it in a very, very large building, like a parliament building. Um, so natural light, landscape, the materials are beautifully selected, the construction details, down to very, very small construction details, those are the things that give people those sticky moments, those moments where they think, oh, I, you know, I could touch that surface, or um, this is what this surface feels like, and look at the way that light comes through that uh, translucent glass. Uh, it's different from the way it comes through transparent glass. So there's, a, it's a very complex design. I mean, I remember I saw Mirai's lecture way before the Scottish Parliament. This was when I was still at Harvard. He was presenting the archery building, and I thought this guy's out of his mind. Um, I mean, the the work is so complicated. Um, and yet, experientially, when you're there on the ground in the landscape and seeing how it works, it's perfect. It works so well, and it is an utterly memorable place without being an overwhelmingly aggressively imagistic one. In fact, it's, it's sort of hard to, to retain an image of that building in your mind because it is so complicated. I anticipate Welcome to Your World is the appropriate launching pad for a series of ongoing investigations similar to what happened for Jane Jacobs, who began with the life and death of great American cities and ended with the dark age again. What will you be writing about next that helps us get out of the present design crisis? I have a, a bunch of different ideas uh, for projects, but one I will certainly do in one form or another is about the distinctiveness and specificity of place. Uh, which is kind of a broader brush take. Um, the book in some ways was quite focused on materials and surfaces and, and tactility and um, the sort of scale questions uh, in the built environment and in part because I'm traveling around the world this year and going to all these different places. And you know, one thing that's just incredibly striking is, is how inflected place really is. Um, and people have all sorts of fears about globalization, homogenizing environments and so on, but you travel around and you know, Marrakesh looks totally, totally different from a city that's 40 miles away from Marrakesh in the landscape that's just a little bit greener. Uh, and that kind of 
really, really subtle inflections of place that make place different, I'd like to figure out how that really works and how designers can use it to their advantage to make places that are really anchored where they are and create meaningful experiences there. Sarah, thank you very much for taking time from your trip around the world to meet us for the Oculus Podcast. I look forward to keeping up with your writing as it deeps delve into cognitive neuroscience and psychology as you relate to design thought. Would you share with us should be common knowledge and mission critical design processes for any product of the built environment? Thank you. It was really fun. As always, I'm deeply grateful to the Oculus Board Advisory Committee, Executive Director Ben Prosky, Oculus Editor Ellen Brake, Camilla Schausen, Barrett Hoff, Chelsea Avery, James Fellerino, Philip Stevens, who is our audio technician today, and the audiovisual crew for their dedicated efforts to make this all possible. Please read the review of Welcome to Your World, How the Built Environment Shapes Our Lives on the eOculus website at www.aiany.org. The Oculus Podcast Series is brought to you by the Oculus Board Advisory Committee of the American Institute of Architecture's New York City Chapter. Take good care, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. And you too.